Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. You know, all humans bear the image of God. The only question is whether we, as followers of Christ, live with that in mind. This is what Elder Candidate Jimmy Carter is addressing in today's sermon from Luke chapter 20, as he asks us a very important question. Whose image do you bear? Like and subscribe to our channel so you don't miss a thing. God bless you. Very good. Very good. Did you notice that when John came up to the pulpit, he said, my name is. How often do you and I say, hi, I'm so-and-so. That's my name. But who am I? Being named or being labeled as one thing as a human being, but who am I? What is my purpose here in this realm? Well, my mom named me Jimmy. Actually, she named me James Frederick Carter after my dad. And the title junior had already been taken by my uncle who had, had already been killed in Guadalcanal in the, in the Second World War. So junior wasn't going to be a player. So I got Roman numeral two stuck after my name. So who am I? I'm the son of James F. Carter, the son of Luella Carter. And by the direct intervention of Christ himself, a son of the Most High God, as you are a son or a daughter. Now these are outrageous claims made by those who follow Jesus Christ. But how about this question? Have you ever heard this in church before? Whose picture is on the $2 bill? How about the $1 bill, the 5 the 10 the 20 the 50 the $100 bill? Did you know that at one time in our country's history there was a $500 bill and a $1,000 bill? And for those of you who are really trivia-minded, a $5,000 bill. And just in case I didn't say it, a $10,000 bill. Today I want to explore with you the intriguing biblical truth that there is a more valuable image being born in this universe than a $10,000 bill. There is an image being born by someone that's more valuable, and we're going to talk about this at the closing of our talk, a $100,000 bill. <laughs> $100,000 bill. But there's a picture on an object that is more valuable than all of those bills combined. And I want to explore that with you this morning as we take the privilege to understand more about our God and King. Let's pray, shall we? For mighty one, at this very moment, would you open the minds and hearts that you've given to us to the glory and the wonder and the truth that you have put your thumbprint on us for a purpose and a reason. That we might understand that, enjoy it, embrace it, and to your great glory live a life that is bright and salty for the King. And it's in your name we pray, thankfully, saying amen. We are going to look at Luke chapter 20. So if you would open or turn your power books on to Luke chapter 20. And we're looking at specifically verses 19 through 26. Now, these eight verses, let's put these in context of Jesus' public ministry. These eight verses are occurring during Christ's Passion Week. Okay, the incident we're going to read about today 
is about two, maybe three days prior to Jesus being murdered. Can I use the word murder? Do you know when you kill someone because your motivation is politics, it's called an assassination. Uh, Jesus has to endure a kangaroo trial. We know all about that. But basically, he's unjustly killed. There's no justification for his murder. He had to condemn himself if you read that passage carefully. But today, Jesus is about midweek or so in that Passion Week. So what happens to him today with this conspiracy is within about two or three days of his death. So what he's teaching is always critical. But in the timeline of his public ministry, we're getting very close to the end. We have three divisions today. We're going to look at a conspiracy. And then we're going to take a look at a coin and then some consequences. So our key words to grab on for memory today are conspiracy, coin, and consequence. And these eight verses, and you know we could go deeper and deeper, couldn't we? In just the eight verses of the Word of God, we're going to go into this notion with this idea of God putting his thumbprint on his creation. And that includes me and you because we're day sixers, aren't we? We are the capstone of creation. Now men... For 55 bonus points. The capstone of creation is what? Whoa, man. Hmm? We're almost there. But the capstone of creation is the woman. And we can see that today in the things that our Lord God does with women to support their men, don't we? We see a mystery and a great power in that. So our first division today is government spies conspire to publicly entrap Jesus, 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20. Jimmy, why in the world did you use the word government? Well, let's remember the first century, Judea, Jerusalem and Judea, were a theocracy. So your chief priests, your priests, your scribes, your teachers of the law, although they were religious leaders, they were also politicians and bureaucrats. So what we're going to read about when it comes to conspiracy, this is a government-sanctioned operation because the chief priests, who are religious leaders, are also your politicians. So this is a government-sanctioned operation. This is a government-sanctioned, organized, and aimed effort to be rid of this itinerant country preacher, this Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So what has happened here in verse 19? I've backed up into a little bit into this notion of the parable of the wicked tenants. And that's why we're back in verse 19 just for a moment. Because Jesus has publicly humiliated the Jewish authorities by telling a parable about them. Now, if you remember this parable, matter of fact, you know, in my Bible, going, we're in chapter 22, right? It's only one page for me to go back to 20. See how much we've learned in just one page of Scripture in these last six weeks, going from 20 to 22? But the elements here of this parable are that there's a, a landowner. He has purchased land. He's bought the vines. He's had them planted. He's put a wall about the vineyard. He's had a watchtower put in for security, and usually there is a press. Those are, the, those are the basic elements of a vineyard. And then he's leased his property to some tenants, and they probably signed a contract. And after, you know, a couple of seasons, the grapes start to bear fruit and you expect a return on your investment, right? Does that seem reasonable? Sure. So the owner 
says, hey, it's time for me to get a return on my investment. He's gone away. He's no longer in the region. So he sends his agents and proxies to the tenants. Now, what should happen? Well, the, the, the tenants should write a check or they should count out his portion of the profits and they should, they should send that back to him, right, with his agents or proxies. But what happens? <laughs> the tenants abuse his agents. They kick him around, they call him bad names, and they say, get out of here. How terrible can that be, right? Until eventually, and this consternated and frustrated landowner sends his beloved son. Surely, he says, they will respect my son. So he sends his son to the tenants, and as the tenants see him off in the distance, they say to themselves, <laughs> here comes the air. We'll kill him, and then the vineyard will be ours. Now, there's a gasp in the crowd as Jesus tells this story. Because what's going to happen here is not only is the son murdered, his cadaver is thrown over the wall into the field. <gasps> Scandalous, because there was a tradition in first century in the Jewish community that if you didn't receive proper burial, you weren't going to Abraham's bosom, their definition of heaven. These wicked tenants took that body and they threw it over the wall to be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I bet there was an audible, <gasps> as the people heard that. Let it not be so. They were so shocked. And of course, Jesus continues to teach them about that capstone which had been disregarded but was now the cornerstone of all things. Now, the Jewish authorities got it. <laughs> they figured it out. The vineyard is Israel. The landowner is God. Those agents and proxies that the landowner sends to the vineyard, those are the prophets of the Old Testament. Guess who the son is? Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, the authorities got it. And they were angry. They were furious. Who is this self-anointed, unsanctioned, uncertified, self-qualified rabbi? Hasn't he caused us enough trouble? Now he has to humiliate us in public? Right here in the temple precincts? Oh, no, 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 no. He's not going to get away with this. Remember, Jesus also accused this same body of men of being thieves. Do you remember this? Jesus cleansed the temple, and specifically, probably, a place called the Court of the Gentiles. Because it was in this space near the temple that God had made room for those who were not yet Jewish to come and hear about God, to be near the temple, the Court of the Gentiles. But the authorities had made it into a marketplace. And let's talk about some of the details that these wicked men were engaged in here. They really were wicked tenants. How about this? We bring our lamb, our unblemished firstborn lamb, and we bring it to the certifying desk at the temple precinct in the court of the Gentiles, and we put our lamb live onto the table, and the priest inspects it, right? And he looks behind the ears, the nose, at the teeth, the tummy, the tail. Oh, you got a blemish here. Darn. You're going to have to buy one of our certified animals back here, and we'll, we'll, we'll give you some credit. We'll give you some credit for this one, but it's blemished. A couple of coins they make on that, right? Because now you have your certified sheep, you can take it and sacrifice it. What did they do with your sheep that they just said wasn't qualified? 
put it right back in the pen. And the next guy comes up, oh, here's our certified. It was a racket, wasn't it? Oh, that local coinage you got there, Pat? No, 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 no. It has to be a temple shekel. Here, here's an exchange rate in that. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, you've turned my dad's house into a den of thieves. Criminal activity is going on. You're taking honest and observant Jewish people and you are corrupting their worship with your corruption. They were truly wicked tenants, weren't they? This is what Jesus is combating as he teaches the people about that capstone that was rejected by men but would be the very foundation of all the universe. Now the... In verse 20, we read, the authorities have now assigned a cadre of spies to shadow Jesus, and they're waiting and watching for the opportunity to publicly embarrass him and manufacture charges by which they can accuse him under Roman law. Here's the deal. We have got to get rid of this guy, but we don't want our fingerprints on it. Why? He's popular. And if the population sees that we're the ones in here persecuting this guy, what are they going to do? We're going to get backlash, civil unrest. This is the Passover. Do you realize there could be as many as one million people in and around Jerusalem during the Passover? Wow. This is a very volatile situation. Because any civil unrest, any rioting, who's going to intervene? Rome. We don't want the Romans intervening, do we? Okay? So at all costs, we've got to make this very sneaky. We've got to get rid of this Jesus guy. And we've got to make sure that the Romans get blamed for it. Now, this would be my definition of nefarious, right? The very foundation of the motivation for these men was nefarious. It was wicked. They have exposed themselves as the wicked tenants, haven't they? This Jesus nonsense is going to be over. Rome is going to get the blame. And we will continue in our self-anointed, privileged life. Hooray! Can you see it? Has anything changed? <laughs> no. So our first principle this morning reads this way. Those who falsely bear God's image ultimately seek to silence Jesus. And the ones who are falsely bearing God's image are the ones who have the image defaced. It's not erased, but it is defaced. As a matter of fact, could I say this with confidence? Every single human being bears the image of God. Would you agree with me? What does chapter 1, verse 26 in the Genesis account tell us? Let us make man in our image. By the way, God's not talking to angels, is he? He's speaking to himself in that mysterious, divine plurality called the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are colluding with one another to determine what is going to be our image as human beings. Let us make man in our image. Male and female, he made them. And although his image can be defaced, it will never be erased because our God and King is not going to let evidence for his truth and reality be erased. Why do you think in our realm, in, 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 our, in our world today, we're trying to get rid of the whole notion of one man, one woman for life? It's a thumbprint on God's creation. Why do you think our culture is so fiercely trying to get rid of maleness and femaleness? It's a thumbprint on God's creation. In our desperation to reject God and get rid of him, we will even say, I'm not a boy. Men can have babies. 
You see, when you have denied God's reality and defied his authority, and then you eject him from your inmost being and you reject him, there's nothing left to fill that void except stuff. And stuff is not enough to fill a place that's designed for the Most High God to dwell. Does that make sense? So you and I live in a biosphere that is populated with millions of human beings who are desperately bumping about, making it up as they go along. And God says, you don't have to do that. I, I have made the way for you. I am the one who gives you purpose. I am the one who gives you power to live a real human life. And this is who Jesus is combating in this event with this conspiracy. So has anyone in the life you've lived this year tried to silence Jesus around you? Because that's what people who bear his image falsely or fraudulently do. They seek to silence Jesus, even today. Oh, no, 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 Scott, you can't pray in Jesus' name here. Oh, well, you know what? <laughs> that's your truth, but that's not my truth. Jesus was just a good man and a wise teacher. Have you heard these things before? People trying to silence the king and creator of the universe by telling you you can't speak about him. So I'll ask again. Has anything changed? Let's move into our second division. Here we see that this cadre of spies are going to shadow Jesus and catch him in his words. Now, what does it mean to catch him in his words? Okay, here's the deal. Let's pretend we're the spies, okay? We're the conspirators here. We've got to get Jesus in a public place. We've got to get him to say something that's binary, yes and no. If he responds one way, the Romans get him. If he responds in another way, he loses popularity. We got to get him. Well, what issue could we use? Oh, 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 how about divorce? No, no, no. The Sadducees got crushed on that, remember? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, what else could we use? Um, let's lose. A, oh, how about, how about working on the Sabbath? No, he took care of us on that one too, remember? Oh, what we got left here? Oh, <gasps> paying taxes to the Romans. Oh, that's a good one. Can you just hear them? They probably role play it, they memorize their lines. Oh, can you just see the glee? We've got him on this one. Because no matter what he says, it's either the Romans or no popularity, he's gone. I bet they practiced. I bet they had a mock trial. I bet they had role-playing. We're going to get rid of this guy. It's going to be the Romans' fault. And that would be in verses 21 and 22. And the memory word here is coin. Now, in verse 21, the spies prelude to their attempted trap is laced with insincere platitudes and flattery. They even call Jesus rabbi or teacher. That's a term of respect. But they smoothly assured those around them that Jesus speaks and teaches what is right. And he does not show partiality, but he teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth. Can you just hear him? Man, how many times did these guys rehearse this, I wonder? <laughs> Now, by the way, this is really super smarmy, don't you think? You know, in Kentucky, we don't call it smarmy. We call it a cartload of cow pie. That's what these guys are dumping right there in front of Jesus, aren't they? Oh, Jesus, we know you're a man of God. 
Just see their smarmy smiles. Oh my goodness. Isn't it ironic though that these hypocrites trample on truth as they mouth platitudes about truth? In verse 22, the spies bring the trap. Here's the question, ready? Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Can you just see him? Jesus. Boy, if we'd been there, I wonder if we'd seen the visage on the spy's face actually change, become dark with the rage and the wickedness that was within them. Oh, they've got you now, Jesus. So they spring the trap. No more syrupy smiles and empty, breathless compliments. Now the filthy work of deception, confusion, and innuendo. But again... These agents of fraud are probably excited because they've got Jesus. They're going to crush his public ministry. They're going to ruin his life. And they're going to clear the horizon of this entire affair. Wait for it. Wait for it. Hmm. That was a short division. Here's another principle. Wait for it. The second principle reads, those who falsely bear God's image ultimately seek to subvert the truth about Jesus. So you want to silence him and you want to subvert subvert the truth about him. How are the spies lying about Jesus? They're not for him. They're lying about that. They They don't admire him. They don't trust him. They're lying about that. So they're suggesting to the people around them, you you shouldn't trust this guy. You shouldn't put your faith in this guy because in about two breaths, we're going to expose him and he's going to be gone. So the one who bears the image of God falsely or fraudulently is going to be one who participates in the undoing of Christ by subverting the truth about him. Have you ever, let's say this year, have you ever heard someone say false about who Jesus is, what Jesus teaches, or what Jesus does? On the radio, personally perhaps, on a, on a podcast. Has anything changed? Well, Jesus was just a good man. Well, I is philosopher and good teacher. <laughs> but that's not what he claims, is it? So we've got a conspiracy. We've got a coin right now that is going to be the center of the lesson. Say so it sprung the trap. Now, let's put our minds, if we can, in and among these men, these wicked tenants, who are gleefully expecting Jesus to have to respond. Remember, that's the way we game it. That's the way we practice it. That's the way the focus group told us it was going to go. But you know what Jesus does? He asks a question. (laughs) What? Hey, wait a minute. Was he supposed to ask a question? No, he's supposed to answer ours. What, 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 what should we do now? I don't know, just keep quiet. You can't put the king of the universe into a square corner. You've got to be out of your mind to even attempt. Huh, they were out of their minds, weren't they? Because when you take your inmost being and you empty it of the most high God, you are out of your mind. You're empty. You can't be a real boy or a real girl without your king and creator dwelling in you. So as we move into the third division, we see this transition of Jesus literally taking the initiative away from those who are trying to abuse him. 
Whose image is on the coin? What coin are we talking about? We're talking about the denarius. It's an official Roman coinage. And as Jesus asked the question in verse 23, the spies are rocked back on their heels. Now they have two choices, don't they? Well, we don't know whose visage is on the coin. Or they could say, Tiberius Caesar. But one way or another, perhaps the spies are thinking, yeah, we can still get there, but it's, yeah, we're kind of confused right now. This isn't what's supposed to be happening. In the third division, the spies are exposed and silenced by Jesus' wisdom. This is verses 23 and 26. The key word here is consequences, and the coin is going to be the venue for the consequence. Jesus says, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Now, a denarius was an official Roman coin. It was used to pay legionnaires their wage, and it was also the official coinage of paying your taxes. And at this time, the visage or the picture on that coin was Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription said, in English, of course, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Let's take a look at where this whole tradition comes from in the Roman Empire, just for a moment, because I think it's important that you and I understand that more is going on with the coin than just its given value. Now, Julius, by the way, Caesar is not a name, okay? Caesar means king in Latin, Caesar, Caesar. We get Kaiser, king in Germany, from that. So it's Tiberius, Caesar, like Jimmy, dumbhead. That's an official term in Kentucky, by the way. So the first emperor is a guy named Julius. He is a co-regent with another guy named Pompey. But Julius wants to be the guy. So he brings his legions back from what we today would be modern Germany and modern France. He returns to Rome and he crosses a river called the Rubicon with his legions, which is illegal. He comes into Rome with his legions and he seizes the entire government. He dissolves the Senate and says, I am emperor. Now that lasts for about six weeks and then he's assassinated. But it sparks a civil war. And those who want an emperor who followed Julius are at war now with Pompey and Mark Antony who are Republicans. And it's a pretty bloody civil war. It ends up at the eastern edge of the empire in a place called Philippi. And Pompey and his forces are defeated there. So now we're going to have an emperor. So Julius has an adopted son named Octavian. So you know what? We're going to make Octavian the first full-term emperor of the Roman Empire. And since it's so special, we're going to change your name from Octavian to Augustus, the wise one, the clever one. And then we're going to call you Augustus Caesar. Now history tells us that Augustus Caesar was a pretty good dictator. He wrote books on how to be a good dictator. He wrote books on how to build bridges and how to build aqueducts and how to unite the kingdom with infrastructure and remember bread and theater. Keep the people occupied. Well, from 67 BC to about 14 AD, there you have it. Augustus is emperor. He did a pretty good job. Now, in 14 AD, his son, Tiberius, takes over. 
And it's Tiberius who has his picture on the coin that Jesus is talking about. Can you see it said when Jesus says, show me the coin, someone flips the coin to him, he grabs it in midair and he says, whose picture is on the coin? Uh, Tiberius Caesar. And what's the inscription? Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. There's a claim to divinity being made on the coin, isn't there? We see the seeds of Roman emperor worship right here. So there's a claim to divinity and there's a picture on the coin. And Jesus says, if Tiberius is picture and he's Caesar, then give to Caesar what's Caesar. Some versions say return to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And then he says this, brothers and sisters, and this is the center of our lesson today. And to God that which is God's. When I say the words to you, and to God, that which is God's, let's pretend we're first century Jewish people, okay? What would we think when we heard Jesus say, and to God, that which is God's? What we, what, what, well, I said, okay, well, that's the sacrifice, right? Three festivals a year, uh, the firstborn of my flock or my herds, the first grain of my fields, that's God's. That's, that's what you mean, right, Lord? You know, the sacrifice, the law, the traditions. But what is Jesus teaching? Jesus is teaching you and I bear an image just like the coin bore an image, and there is a claim to divinity on us. You and I are image bearers, whether we want to be or not. We're created in God's image. Hmm. So Jesus isn't talking about the law and the traditions and the festivals and the sacrifices. He's talking about something more. Remember back in Samuel, Samuel was supposed to be with King Saul because the Philistines were amassing their forces. And Saul panics. Saul goes, oh man, look at those guys. We've got to make the sacrifice now because that's the tradition. Jewish kings would sacrifice to the Lord and then go to battle. That was the tradition. Well, Samuel's nowhere to be seen. He's a priest, by the way, as well as a prophet. We better make the sacrifice here, guys. Come on, we got to go to war. <laughs> da, 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 da. And there's Samuel appearing a few minutes later. He goes, hey, Saul, you've really messed this up. You see, it's not about sacrifice. It's about obedience. The Old Testament teaches us that. The New Testament teaches us. It's not about tradition and empty motions. It's about you and me. God wants our heart. We belong to him anyway. We bear his image. He wants you and I to benefit from having a right relationship with him. So Jesus takes the coin. He uses it as the venue of this lesson. And he flips it back to someone in the crowd. And now, uh-oh, the spies have been exposed, haven't they? This cadre of wicked men have been exposed. At this moment, Jesus does four things. He turns the table on the spies. He exposes them as manipulating hypocrites. He reveals the truth that all people bear God's image and we belong to him, whether we like it or not. And four, he silences his accusers. In a breath. Well, brothers and sisters, now that we've talked for a few minutes about this notion of bearing God's image, what does it mean to bear God's image? 
I mean, we kind of bandy that term around, but what does it really mean? We've kind of figured out what does God want. He wants us, right? Not tradition, not, not empty things. He wants us. He wants our hearts. Well, I'm going to propose to you there are five obvious things that prove to us that we're not the product of a mindless and purposeless process called evolution. But we are made to bear the image of the one true God. One, we're sentient. We are self-aware. And we can put ourselves into the stream of time. We have calendars and clocks and watches. We memorialize time with birthdays and anniversaries, don't we? I got a card for my birthday this year from the ancient Chinese philosopher Bung Hung, and it said, Yu Young No Mo. You're going to get that in an hour or so, but Yu Young No Mo. And that would be me as we age. And I also would propose to you that as our bodies age, there's something about our minds that does not age. I'm telling you, last week I tried to do something I know I could do last year, and I went, Oh, boy, that, ooh, ow. I didn't know I had a muscle there. I'm also going to propose to you that we human beings have a distinct awareness of moral rightness and wrongness. It's universal. I think it's built into us. We have will, intellect, and emotion. And we show it more and as evidenced in anything in the animal kingdom. I think also human beings have an undeniable urge to worship. Boy, you give me something, I'll worship it. Unless... The king of the universe dwells in me. And then I know who should be worshipped. But if I have denied God's reality and defied his authority, if I've ejected him and rejected him, what's left to fill that space with but stuff? So I'm going to start worshipping something. I think that shows that we are made to be the image bearers of the Most High God. And brothers and sisters, haven't we all had that moment when we just stop, maybe in a silent moment, and even say out loud, there's got to be something more. Where does that ache come from? But the first realm. Because I'm going to propose to you also that we as human beings are hybrids. We are of this realm and the first realm are spirits. And I think that's why God holds us in such high regard. The angels are only of one realm. They can appear, but they are not of two realms as we are. We are hybrids. We have earth suits encased in a spiritual reality. C.S. Lewis said it often. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And once we're conceived, that soul lives forever. One way or another. Just like we bear God's image. Well, in verse 26, the spies fail to trap Jesus. They're trapped themselves. And they're astonished at the answer. And they're silenced. You see, not only were the spies dumbfounded by the simple power of truth, they didn't even have a retort. It wasn't even the old, oh yeah, they had nothing. Those who falsely bear God's image will ultimately be snared by their own snares, trapped in their own traps, and fall into their own pit. We know that's because the writer of the Proverbs in 29.6 and the writer of Psalms in 7.15 and 141.10 say so. So our last principle this morning, brothers and sisters, those who falsely bear God's image are ultimately silenced by Jesus' astonishing wisdom. And that'll be at the great white throne. 
Every wicked agent and every wicked impulse in human history is going to be judged rightly and it will be put away. And those under Christ's blood in glorified bodies will bear in a creation where there isn't even evil present anymore. Justification saves us from the penalty of sin. Our sanctification is saving us from the power of sin. And glorification, we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. Glory and glory and glory. Hallelujah. When's the last time you had a wow, a wow moment with Jesus? Maybe private time in scripture study or prayer or with another brother or sister. You just went, wow, wow. What a God we worship. Who would not want to worship this God? Well, that was you and me before he intervened on our behalf, right? Before he made us clear and salty bearers of his image, we were bearing his image fraudulently and falsely. But now we bear that image freely and fervently and sometimes ferociously, don't we? Well, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, let me read you the list of who appears on, on money here in the United States. On the $1 bill, George Washington. On the 2 Thomas Jefferson. Very good. On the $5 bill, it's Abe Lincoln. On the $10 bill, Al Hamilton, the first treasurer of the United States. Not a president, but Al Hamilton. The $20 bill, Andrew Jackson, the president. The 50 is Ulysses S. Grant, and he was a president. The $100 bill is Franklin, correct. And, by the way, just as an aside, it's the most counterfeited bill in the world right now. Ben Franklin's picture. Now, the 500, the 1,000, the 5,000, and 10,000 were taken out of uh, printing in 45 and they were taken out of circulation in 69. But here are the names William McKinley on the 500, Grover Cleveland on the 1,000. <laughs> okay. The $5,000 is Jimmy Madison, James Madison. And finally, the $10,000 bill, Samuel P. Chase, who gave his personal fortune to fund the American Revolution. And by the way, there was a $100,000 bill. It was only used between Federal Reserve banks. It was a gold certificate. And if you can tell me whose face is on that, you get 55 bonus points. Dun, 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 dun! Woody Wilson on the $100,000 gold certificate. Was that guy set? Did he set me up? Uh -huh. Yeah, he is. And that's a great way to, to study our history. Well, men and women, the most valuable image-bearing vehicle in the universe is you and me. Because you know, the life of the one who bears God's image faithfully is a priceless note in our Lord's ledger of life. And again, the only means that you and I can bear that image faithfully is the direct intervention of Jesus Christ in the life we live unilaterally. He does it. And because of him dwelling in us, now we can bear that image brightly and more and more clearly to those about us. Defaced, but he's cleaning up that image as he works us through our sanctification. But to those who bear that image falsely and fraudulently, there is no brightness in the life they live. Those who faithfully bear God's image will seek to serve Jesus of Nazareth. As he invests you and me in his kingdom's glorious and eternal work. Let's pray, shall we? 
Mighty God, how good and right you are, how worthy of our praise and our extolation and our worship of you. Thank you for these moments that we might get to know you better, to see you better, and to know that you love us so much that you would go to death and return for us. Mighty one, prepare us for the week you have set before us because it's your week. It's your world. We are your people by the work of your Son in whose name we pray, saying together, Amen. A blessed week to all of us.